0: What's the theme of this retreat? Anybody know? Realizing Realizing justice face-to-face. Okay, thank you. So shall we? Realize justice face-to-face. It might be helpful for me to uh, mention that at the beginning of this calendar year um, I brought up a story from the collection of Zen stories and the name of the story is the world-honored one points to the earth. So once upon a time, the world-honored one, the Buddha, was walking along on the earth with a group with his group and he pointed to the earth and said this is a good place to build a sanctuary. And then the the leader of the divine beings in his group took a blade of grass and planted it in the earth and said, the sanctuary is built. (laughs) And then the world honored one smiled. One interpretation of this story is that the world honored one walks on the earth And that the World Honored One points to the earth and says, this is a good place to build a sanctuary. (laughs) And um, this is a good place to build a sanctuary. This is a good place to sanctuary building. Wherever you are on the earth, The World Honor One points to the earth there and says, this is a good place. <coughs> step by step, moment by moment, this is a good place to build a sanctuary. And then... Uh, Indra takes the blade of grass and plants it and says the sanctuary is built. So then the next point is that we have the opportunity to take a blade of grass and plant it here and have this be a sanctuary. And the world-honored one will smile. And uh, it's—I I leave it to you to, to look in your heart and see what kind of, what for what do you want to build a sanctuary, or what do you want to be the blade of grass in your sanctuary? One of the things that I would like to make a sanctuary for is justice. Build a place for justice. For me, that's also to build a place for Awakening, or the practice of awakening for the path of awakening. A few minutes ago I saw a schedule for this retreat, this session. I think it said in the schedule, over and over it said Zazen. And then in brackets I think it said sitting meditation. Is it? Did you make the schedule to say sitting meditation in brackets? So, one could also build a a sanctuary for zazen, a sanctuary for sitting meditation. Zazen is a name that some people use for awakening. Some other people use zazen in, in other ways. sitting meditation as a synonym or as an alternative name for awakening. We can build a sanctuary here and then according to the schedule like at 9 in the morning it says Zazan on the schedule so at 9 in the morning we can build a sanctuary for awakening. And we can sit and then the sanctuary is built. The sanctuary of awakening is built. We can also call zazen the teaching of suchness. It's a teaching of suchness. It's a teaching which is a practice of awakening. Zazen is a practice of awakening it's a practice of the teaching of suchness and one of our the poems of this school or of this of our one of our ancestors starts out by saying the teaching of suchness is intimately communicated by Buddhas and ancestors. Enlightenment is intimately communicated by Buddhas and ancestors. And I would guess that some of you might think that that was, yeah, that makes sense. Enlightenment is what Buddhas and ancestors. That's what they communicate, and they would do so intimately. Yeah, that makes sense. And what I like to emphasize is, another way to say it is, (laughs) teaching of suchness is intimate (laughs) transmission is Buddha's ancestors. It's okay also to say the teaching of suchness is intimately transmitted by, but you can take away that, yeah, you can leave first is in and instead of saying intimately communicated, you can say enlightenment is intimate communication and that is Buddha's Zazen is intimate transmission. Zazen is Buddha's intimate transmission. And when I say Zazen is Buddha's intimate transmission, You could hear that as S at the end of Buddha or apostrophe S, either way. Did you follow that? Right now I won't go into stories about why I was interested to practice sitting meditation. I mean, I'm going to just say that I understood that it was a training, a method of training, sitting meditation. It was a method of practice that, all, that, that the people who I was interested in emulating practiced. So I thought maybe I could practice the same practice as these great compassionate beings, and I would become like they did by the practice that they did. And I thought, this is a practice which I will do. I will do the sitting meditation practice. At that time, I didn't think that the sitting meditation practice was complete perfect enlightenment. I thought it was something that if you practiced, you would realize at some point complete perfect enlightenment. I did not understand that the zazen practice is complete, perfect enlightenment. Now that's my understanding. So I share with you my understanding now and tell you about the way I used to understand. When I first, first heard about the sitting meditation, I did not think that sitting meditation was... an intimate face-to-face transmission. Now I do. I thought I could practice sitting meditation by myself. And I tried sitting by myself. I had a very nice room I made in Minnesota to sit. By myself. It had white walls and a green rug, a green carpet, and a window. And I usually sat facing the wall that had the window. And I did. I did practice sitting in that room, and uh, somehow, and the, the thought came to me that this is the kind of practice it might be good to do, you know, frequently, like daily. Yeah, I had it had not yet come to my mind that this would be a good practice every moment. I didn't think, oh, this is what I should be doing all the time. I thought I would do it, you know, daily or and maybe maybe more maybe quite a bit daily. But it didn't occur to me that what this would practice actually was about was what you do all the time, namely all the time, complete perfect enlightenment, not just from 9 to 9.30, which is on the schedule here. However, after 9.30, there's a walking meditation from 9.30 to 9.40. And the walking meditation is also complete perfect enlightenment. So you don't actually have to take a break from complete perfect enlightenment. So anyway, I, I had the thought that it would be good to practice this meditation daily, at least... And um, but I didn't. Sometimes there was several days between each period, maybe even a week or two weeks. And I thought maybe I thought arose if I would invite some of my friends to sit with me, maybe that would promote my, my sitting practice. So I invited my friends. And they didn't come, even though a lot of them thought, how cool, Zen meditation. And they didn't even know how cool it was.
1: <laughs>
0: I didn't tell them, you want to come and practice complete, perfect enlightenment? Then they might have come, but I didn't know how to advertise it so well. <laughs> and and because they didn't come, um, I had trouble being regular. And then the thought arose, what if I went to a Zen center? There wasn't one in Minnesota, but I did know hear about one in San Francisco. What if I about went to the Zen center and practiced with other people who were practicing? Then I probably, maybe I could be more regular. So I did go. And the people were pract- and 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 the people were in the meditation hall and and I did go and sit with them and it did help me be regular. And I actually became regular because of the support of the of the community. And I also things were coming up when I was sitting, and I didn't know if that was like if these things that were coming up uh, if they were, like, in accord with the practice of sitting meditation, or not. So I thought I could ask the teacher, who has lots of experience, about whether the, what's going on is, is um, in accord with the practice. Again, I didn't think in accord with complete perfect enlightenment. I just thought in accord with the Zen training, which... I thought would lead to per- complete perfect enlightenment. And there was a teacher, so I went there, there was a community, there was a teacher, and I was regular, and everything that was coming up in Zazen was in accord with Zazen, the teacher said. But again, I did not think when I was sitting for the first year, or the second year, or the third year, or the fourth year, or the fifth year, or the sixth year, or the seventh year, or the eighth year, <laughs> or the ninth year, or the tenth I didn't think, during those years, that the sitting was complete perfect enlightenment. I didn't think that the sitting was a social activity. I knew that I was in a room with other people, and they were helping me sitting, but I I didn't think that the sitting itself was social. I didn't think the sitting was face-to-face encounter with others. I was sitting with others. We were kind of cheek-to-cheek. but We weren't literally facing each other usually. Like, now I'm facing you. But somehow in those days, I didn't think the Zazen practice is face-to-face communion. I didn't think that. I didn't think Zazen, sitting meditation, is social justice. It didn't occur to me. If I'd heard about it, I probably would have gone, hmm. I did eventually hear about it, and I did go, hmm but it took me a long time to hear that sitting meditation and walking meditation and talking meditation in the Buddha's house, they're all face-to-face transmission. When I went to the Zen Center, I didn't travel across the country and think, I'm gonna go to San Francisco and help those Zen people. I'm gonna go there and support their practice and give myself to help them practice enlightenment. I didn't think that. I went to get, have them help me. And they did. And that's right, they do. They do and they did and they will. Everybody's helping me practice enlightenment. Every moment, everybody's helping me practice face-to-face transmission. Reality is, everybody's helping me practice enlightenment. If I could possibly practice not enlightenment, which I can't, everyone would help me.
1: <coughs>
0: Do you sometimes chant Precious samadhi here. So that starts out the teaching of suchness is intimately communicated, Buddhas and ancestors. You chant the merging of difference and unity too here. That one starts out the mind of the great sage of India is intimately communicated from east to west. So both of those s- poems that are recited here start out by saying that the teaching of suchness, the mind of the sage, great sage of India, the teaching of suchness and the mind of the Buddha is the, are the same thing. The mind of the great sa- Buddha of the great sage is the teaching of suchness. That's what's that's the mind of the Buddha. It's a mind that is a teaching of truth. And the teaching of truth is a, is a mind. It's an it's a awakened mind. And it's transmitted intimately. That's what those poems say. And then they, they go on to describe this intimate transmission. And the precious Mir Samadhi, after introducing this this precious this, Samadhi, this, uh, this intimate transmission, it says, "Now you have it, so please take care of it." The poem saying, You have it. You have Zazen now. You have this intimate communication now, so please take care of it. And at the end of that poem, it says, If you can achieve continuity, continuity in what? In taking care of this intimate communication. If you can continuously practice face-to-face communication, this is the host within the host. This is the teacher within the teacher. If you can Be continuous in this practice, which has been given to you intimately. It has already been given to you face to face. Now, practice secretly, working within, like a fool, like an idiot. If you can achieve continuity, this is the host within the host. And the other poem, the merging of difference, or the harmony of difference and unity which talks about the mind of the great sage, at the end, it says, I humbly say to those who practice the mystery. What mystery? The mystery of face-to-face transmission. I humbly say to those who are meeting face-to-face, with others, don't waste time. Don't miss a chance. Now, I would also say that you can't waste time. So since you can't, don't. (laughs) Everything we meet, every other we meet, is an opportunity for this enlightenment, which is face-to-face. Transmission. And as many of you know, there's unlimited Zen stories and non Zen stories, right? You certainly know there's unlimited non Zen stories, don't you? And of course, Zen stories are all basically non Zen stories. So, and all of them are about face-to-face transmission. And all of them are about justice. Justice lives in face-to-face transmission. And in a way, the face-to-face transmission, although it, it entails justice or includes justice, in a sense, it goes beyond justice. It leaps free of justice. Justice lives in it, but it doesn't abide in justice. It doesn't abide in anything, even justice. And, when, and by not abiding in justice and including injustice, it realizes justice, because justice that we hold on to is a, is a reduction of justice. I hear some sounds and um, some of the sounds I hear I think that they sound like human language I can still hear those sounds they seem to be coming from the street aside from my my mouth I wonder, are those voices, are those sounds calling to me? Are all of you calling to me? Am I calling all of you? Am I invoking all of you? Are all of you invoking me? I feel invoked by you to say yes. I am invoked by all you. I am provoked by all of you. I am pervaded by all of you. And I pervade all of you. This is our nature. Maybe that's enough from me today. Is there anything you want to bring up before we conclude this this teaching of suchness? This face-to-face transmission? Um, bodhisattva precepts. And the other words I said earlier, could replace it with all those, like zazen is, a, is, a, is another word for justice. But again, um, the, the justice, which is zazen, leaps beyond itself. So it's not not the justice that some people think, which is a fixed thing that's stuck in being this way. Because it is completely just, it is not just. And that's an essential ingredient of justice, is that it's not stuck in anything. It's the way things aren't stuck. The way things aren't stuck is justice. And that's also called Zazen. And it's also called the Buddha mind seal, is another word for justice. Justice is not something that I make by myself in this world. It's something I do in face to face meetings with others. And they also can't do it without me. Nobody can make justice and leave me out. Justice is a fully responsible conversation. Justice is is a conversation. Justice is the dynamics of dialogue. Justice is Listening and learning to others. And that means me listening to others and others listening to me. That's justice. And that there's no way to abide in that. If I abide, I get distracted from the conversation. You did.
2: <laughs> like
0: You'd like another? <laughs> another is granted. <laughs> Since um,
1: you could replace that word with these other words, um, what made you
3: decide to um, call this particular retreat and use the word of justice?
0: All of you made me this person who sent those words to New York. And then you can tell stories in addition to all of you. You can they can make one story for each one of you. And here's one of them. A lot of Zen students, they practice Zen, they appreciate it, and they say, what does this have to do with social justice? They don't understand that what they're doing is social. They don't understand that that when they're sitting still and silent, they're having a conversation. They don't understand the conversation when they're quiet. They don't understand action when they're still. They can't understand that in stillness, there's a great activity of justice. So, maybe it should be brought up That's one of the stories. All of us are active all day long, and then one of our activities is to think. Yeah, one of our, our main activity is thinking, and then our thinking can be, I don't think enough. Or a lot of people, when they're in the Zendo, they think, I think too much. So they're thinking a lot, and then on top of thinking a lot, they think they're thinking too much. And then a few minutes later, they think, I don't think enough. <laughs> I should be thinking about some other stuff besides the stuff I'm thinking about. I should be making plans to go to Darfur. Or I should be writing a letter to my congressman. This is is social activity. When you think of writing to your congressman, that's social activity. When you think of not writing to your congresswoman, that's social activity. All day long you are socially active. But people don't understand that. They think sometimes I'm socially active and sometimes I'm not. You cannot get away from interacting with everybody. You can think that you can get away and that's another social action. Because when you think you can get away from me, when, when you think you cannot have a social relationship with me, that's your social relationship with me. And so, you know, people can walk up to me and say, I'm not going to have a social relationship with you. <laughs> But they can also keep it to themselves and just think it and that's the kind of relationship to have at that moment and it's social and everything you think about your friends pervades me everything you think about me pervades me everything i think about sue pervades you all my all my conscious activities pervade all your conscious activities all your conscious activities pervade my activities that's social that's social interaction between consciousnesses where there's activity going on is called karmic karmic means activity the activity in our consciousness is our karma My karma pervades your consciousness and interacts with your karma. But everybody else's is also pervading your consciousness. And you're pervading everybody else's. That's social. People don't understand that. The Buddha mentioned it thousands of years ago. He said karma, your activity, has consequence. He didn't say... At that moment, when he said that, he didn't say, and the consequence is that your karma pervades all other consciousnesses. He didn't say that in English. I'm saying it in English. And there's and if you're in a state of uh, like deep dreamless sleep, at that moment your consciousness is basically turned off. Your unconscious cognitive processes continue in deep, dreamless sleep, but there's no mind where you're there anymore, and there's no karma. However, your unconscious cognitive processes are pervading everybody else's unconscious cognitive processes. But your activity isn't anymore because your conscious activity is temporarily turned off. Which is one of the nice things about deep sleep. You get a break from this activity. However, your break, your rest pervades everybody else's consciousness. So, justice comes up because in my face-to-face meetings with people, there's a possibility of doing justice to them. But without, the, without exercising a face-to-face meeting, I probably will not do justice to the people I meet. Because my karmic consciousness, my self-consciousness, my mind where there's me, is biased and distorted and <laughs> constricted and reduced. And, all the, and the way all of you appear in my consciousness is a reduced, biased, constricted, impoverished version of you. So from that perspective I cannot do justice to you. Well, how, how can I do justice to you? How can I do justice with you? How can I help you do justice to me because you do that the same to me. You can't your karmic consciousness doesn't do me justice. We we do we do justice to each other by fully responsible conversation face to face in the in the midst of that conversation justice is realized we don't eliminate our biased consciousnesses that wouldn't do justice to our biased consciousnesses because in our biased consciousness, we have we see our biased consciousness, and we maybe go, let's get rid of this biased consciousness. Let's get rid of this consciousness which doesn't do justice to people. When I was a you know a kid in Minnesota, I didn't know very many Italian people. You got a lot of Italian people in this area, right? But, uh, you know, I thought every, all Italians were like people in the movies. That's the, most of the Italians I knew I saw in the movies. And later I found out about Rome and the Italian Renaissance. I thought, oh, there's that's more to Italy than that. Oh, now there's, look at, there's another one. <laughs> We don't. Ta- we don't need to. Ta- the, the The thing that would tamper with our biased consciousnesses would be biased consciousness. It's not going to help. But observing biased consciousness will, and you can see that your biased consciousness is biased, and that your, yeah, that your views are prejudiced and diluted. And that if you have a view, it's not like, well, this is my view and that's it. It's not, No, you'd have to, like, justify it. You need to justify your views. How do you justify them? By face-to-face conversation. And that will help you, if you can justify your views, that will help you do justice to others. And also, part of the, what's necessary in this justice realization is to meet the other in such a way that you feel called into question. Again, pretty much non-stop. karmic consciousness, self-consciousness needs to be called into question in order for there to be justice. If this conscious if the views of this consciousness cannot be called into question, the, the miraculous delusion of injustice is starting to be realized. It's not real, but if I don't see that I'm being, that you're calling me into a question right now, that will not facilitate the justice. Any further questions at this time? Again, the thought arises of all the stories of the history of Zen, where people come and put Zen teachers in question, and where Zen teachers come and put Zen students in question, and where Zen teachers put Zen teachers in questions, and Buddhas put Buddhas in question. This is. This is the process of justice between living beings and Buddhas, between Buddhas and Buddhas, between all of us. This is what's really going on. And some people have awakened to this reality, and they encourage us to join it. And we join it, and we can join it, and we do join it. Again, sort of amazingly, we join it in stillness. You don't have to go, you don't have to move over a little bit to the left to join it. You can be called into question right where you are. You are being called into question. Without moving, you are. Without moving, you have an ethical relationship with all beings right now. And that it, that ethical relationship is functioning in stillness. With you and everybody. It's not in you. Even though it pervades you, it's not in you. Because it's everything that's outside you, in you. It's what isn't in you that makes you that's pervading you. That's right now. In the the ritual enactment of unselfishness, it is possible that in the enactment of unselfishness, thoughts will continue to arise. So, and the thought could be, what's next? And then, how do you ritually enact selflessness with what's next? With the thought, what's next?
3: Yeah. So, how
0: am I You're doing it right now. Right now, you are ritually enacting selflessness by having a conversation with me. And what next step to that? Again. You just did it again. You richly enacted selflessness by talking to me. The way you enact selflessness is by face-to-face transmission with me right now. If you turn to that man, you could be in that conversation. That's the way you do it. And this, this conversation, this face-to-face confirmation comfirm- conversation, is open to unlimited diversity. So we allow thoughts like, what's next? Which is one of the primary you know, delusions of human life is what's next. (laughs) Right? We don't forbid that. We allow what's next. And then when it comes up, the practice is to have a meeting with another around the word what's next. In other words, don't waste the moment of what's next and think that that question isn't the opportunity for face-to-face transmission. And you ask it from me. I didn't have the what next. You had it. You gave it to me. But I could have it and come to see you. John, what's next? You say, this is it. (laughs) We're doing it. I never thought you'd ask me that. Face-to-face transmission is the enactment of selflessness. And it is open to to anybody's deluded thought, and also even open to kind of deluded thoughts that a lot of us have. It could be some really weird one that none of us have ever even heard of, or it could be one that we're quite familiar with. Again, it's like, how can there be continuity? Like, okay, it's okay, okay, okay. But then, no, don't miss what then. Continuity. Don't get derailed. Don't let anything trick you. Like that story, you know. What's his name? (laughs) Do you know his name? (laughs) (laughs) His name is... Zwigon which I think means upright cliff. Zvigand got got up in the morning and what did he say? Master. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, he got up in the morning and he said, Master, yes. He got up and immediately started face-to-face transmission. Master, yes. Are you awake? Yes. All day long, don't let anything fool you. I won't. What about what's next? I won't. It's a conversation. And it's going on all the time and it's face to face. And it's with the other. And that other will free us from our. Our egocentric prejudices, we cannot free ourselves. And the other doesn't free us. It's the conversation with the
1: other.
4: Conversation with the other, yes. I had an experience with that that I'd like to share. Just, I had someone that was going to help me receive my bond, and um, when he pulled his truck into my driveway, he walked toward me and we greeted him. And for some reason, he decided to tell me who he was going to vote for. So I'm voting for X, and I don't care what anyone thinks. And I said, "I hear you." That was it. Just, I hear you. I was present with him. And then he sort of took that as a permission and went on a little bit more expressively about his views. And I did the same thing. And I just stood and I said to him, I hear you, which made him think I was you know, going to vote for the same candidate, which I wasn't. They didn't ask me who I was going to vote for, so I didn't say anything. And um, the conversation ended up at a, a meeting point where we agreed on something. And as I was listening to his attachment to his views I could see the attachment of my own views and I thought that's a lot of suffering he's going through those views and I thought well that's a lot of suffering I'm going through with these views you know it was like and then all of a sudden the attachment I had to my views just kind of melted like I don't know I don't I don't know here we are there's two people with these really strong views and we're both suffering so, then I ended up just in compassion for
0: something other. Yeah, congratulations. And you said we got to the point, but you were at the point at the beginning, but you couldn't see it. Because you weren't, you know, you weren't appreciating how fully engaged you are. But you got more into it, and, and when you realized how fully engaged you are in the conversation, you don't have to change your views, Just let go of them. After you let go of them, they're probably still there. They might do a few flips. I don't know. But they can be basically what they always were. Views. And prejudiced.
4: So injustice, when we're talking about the view of justice, as you would, uh, I don't know, read it in a Russian novel, you know? The notion that there's a right and a wrong, or a, um, something to measure decisions against, is um, ephemeral. Right? I mean, it, it arises, and we have an interpretation of it. But mm-hmm. um, if there's fluidity in each situation, if each moment and each encounter is fluid, then it is is the right frame of sort of huh. Like, who am am I to say what is right or not right? And therefore, when I think what is right, and I'm attached to that, I'm already deluded. So that's the leaping beyond justice that Zazen hits is to say, I don't really know. This is what I see. I might perceive it this way, but I don't know.
0: Yeah, and leap beyond that.
4: Leap beyond I don't know.
0: And there's a lot of places to go from. I don't know. For example, I do know. <laughs> Boy, do I know. <laughs> <laughs> and if I'm and if I'm in a face-to-face conversation with, I know. That face-to-face conversation is the leaping. Oh. A
3: delusional story that. You- or shared by others in the room in terms of the uh, language being called into question. Uh, I think this teaching is happening in a context where our social or karmic understanding is such that uh, many people have the experience of being called into question as a threat and as a condition of their life, <clears throat> and not being in a position of calling into question, and in neither case being called or calling, uh, holding that in the way as a gift, but that's more of a threat or an imposition. I wonder if you would say something about that story. Because I think that's how many of us can understand our present realities in a karmic sense.
0: I am called into question, and I call others into question, even when I don't say, I call you into question. My face calls you into question. I don't have to do anything other than be me and call everybody into question. And all of you don't have to do anything special. Whatever you're doing calls me into question. That's one point. What, what's your question? Um, threat? Want me to talk about threat? I, I understand what you just described as the basic situation of our real
3: presence together. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, we we'll woven into many people's fabric of experience
1: mm-hmm.
2: is...
3: Encounters that express that in a threatening way, in a, in a materially threatening way.
0: Now, um, someone might come up to me—I don't know who, maybe you—but you know, or maybe your granddaughter—and sweetly whisper in my ear something, and I might feel threatened. And nobody in the universe besides me thinks that that sweet person who just said, I don't know what, maybe, I love you, granddaddy. How could you feel threatened by that? Well, I do. Now, somebody else come up to you and say, I hate you, granddaddy. And then someone might say, well, if you feel threatened by that, I can get it. So when you say materially threatened... Well, I'm thinking with violence with a
3: weapon, with um, aggression that's Mm -hmm. physical.
0: Yeah, so a granddaughter comes up to me and touches my face. Am I feel Do I feel threatened? Hmm? You might or you might not. I might or I might not. I might feel threatened by her touching me. If she slapped me as hard as she can, might I feel threatened? I might or I might not. If she has a knife in her hand or a gun in her hand, might I feel threatened?
3: <laughs> and I can see where you're going.
0: Yeah, you can you're see where not. I'm going. I might not feel yeah. threatened. My Her big brother, I have a little granddaughter who does, when we're playing, she sometimes just whacks me as hard as she can. She And I, you know, she only did it once. And then I said, that was like, that was really hard. And you know, probably not. A good, you know, And, and I, I said it kind of like I'm saying to you, and that was really hard for her to hear. She felt threatened by me saying, that was really hard. I didn't say it was too hard even. But I think she felt somewhat threatened, and she went. Mm-hmm. She didn't cry, but she was like, I don't know if I can listen to you, your comment on that whack. And I really enjoyed it. <laughs> but I did not feel threatened. Her, her big brother, when he was little, used to throw rocks at me and also wanted to hit me with hammers. So, again, did I feel threatened? I could have, right? Feeling threatened is in the conversation. It's not a fixed thing that lives by itself, being threatened. There's no... The materiality of being threatened is a, I would say, a deceptive form of your mind. A gun or a baseball bat is a deceptive form of mind. And if you understand that and and, and can converse, you will be free of threat and fear. The the, uh, the other person realizing the practice is possible under those circumstances, the person who's, who actually, I do want to threaten you, and I, I can't threaten you with my words, because you can talk just as good as me. So I'm going to use my fist, because my fist's bigger than your fist, because you're not threatened by me just yelling at you, because you can yell back. But my fist is bigger than yours, so I'm going to use my fist to threaten you. And you can teach that person that that threat that they were that offering was actually a gesture of this face-to-face transmission. And many Zen stories are about that very thing of where the person is wanting to threaten this person. This person shows them the conversation.
3: Seems to me that the uh, obstruction to that version of the possibilities that the obstruction to the conversation that yeah. allow that yes is that there's an accumulation of stories that are historical and uh, in the experience and in the mind of the people
4: that are reading right all failing to read. right
0: that's right
3: so how to open up the possibility of the stories changing on both
0: sides of the conversation. Right. Which
3: is harder to do when there's a big this coming
0: at you. Harder for some people. Some process. people some people it's some people it's easier to open up the conversation when they're fighting physically mm-hmm. than when they're having a conversation with a woman.
3: Yeah. I can see
0: that they they, they, they revert to that physical interaction because that's an easier way for them to have a conversation. They'll feel more comfortable pushing somebody around with their hands than just standing there and listening to her. But they're trying to have this conversation. And the hindrance is this consciousness. In both cases, the hindrances are in the consciousness that don't think that they're here to have a conversation. They think, okay, now conversation is not possible anymore. Not with this person. I'm not going to talk to this person. And people come up to me and say that. They say, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to talk to this person. I'm not going to welcome this person to a conversation. And I say, well, can you welcome you're not welcoming them? And they say, oh, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. And I can, I said, I welc- I'm welcoming you telling me that you don't welcome them to a conversation. And then we're, now we're going. So we do need to find some way to start the conversation. Yes. And we can do it with all this accumulated historical stuff, which is our karmic consciousness. That's what, that's what we're that's where we're trying to set the conversation up. The whole thing starts with an act of generosity. Somebody has to give a gift to get the gift-giving going, which is already going. You already are giving to me. I already am giving to you. To, To enact that, I have to give you a gift or you have to give me a gift. If I'm not ready to give you a gift, and you're not ready to give me a gift, then we don't realize that we're giving each other gifts. However, if, if one of us could say, well, I'm not ready to give a gift, now we're, and I accept that, now the gift giving starts. So the face-to-face transmission starts with giving the face. And uh, I brought a piece of calligraphy, which uh, someone made Xerox copies of. And the characters are the characters for what we call... In Jap- the Japanese way of saying it, or Chinese way of saying it, is menjū, which means men is face, and jū is to give. To give the face. Now, it's usually translated into English as face-to-face transmission, but it's, it's more basic. It's saying, give the face. All day long, you are giving your face to this world. And the world is giving its face to you. And we have a karmic consciousness which says, I don't want to give anything to that face. Or that face is not a gift to me. That's our history right there. Enacted. Challenging this practice. How can I be generous with this person? Who's giving me... Oh, not not even giving... Oh, wait a minute. They're giving me a face which I do not want to give my face back to. This is my my hindrance, which I confess and repent before the Buddhas. O Bodhisattva Mahasattvas, please concentrate your hearts on me. I, Tenshin Zenki, Buddha's disciple, do not wish to give my face to this person. I vow to give my face to this person and realize its sacred meaning. And, by the way, before I was able to make this confession, my karmic history was saying, do not give your face to that person. Do not give yourself to that person. They're not worthy of a gift from you and they're not giving you any gifts. In other words, I do not believe in face-to-face transmission as reality. I, b- I believe it's an occasional thing. So the reality I believe in is a, rea- a part-time reality that occurs occasionally in Zen centers, <laughs> and once in a while in Christian churches, and sometimes in mosques, you know, and sometimes in childbirth. There's this occasionally reality manifests. Yeah, and the occasion is now. And every always. But we have stories which say no. So one more thing I'll say about this is, in the midst of feeling threatened, I need to be upright. And when frightening things happen, it's hard for me to, be, to not lean towards them, or away from them, or to the right of them, or left them. How do I be upright with them and give myself to a conversation now? This is what I'm training to do. And the worse the situation gets means the worse, the most, more challenging my karmic consciousness is. My karmic conscience says, this is an easy situation to practice being upright. This is like easy. Fine, do it then. <laughs> this is like actually too difficult to be upright. I can't do it. It's impossible for me because of my history with this person. OK, can you have a face-to-face transmission with yourself at that time? Can I, can I meet you right now while you tell me you can't meet that person? Yeah, I can do it with you, but not with him. Okay, well, let's do it then. And then we do it. And then you say, oh, I can do it with that person. I was wrong. Yay. I really... I'm not just limited. I am limited. I am limited. But I'm also unlimited. I'm limited, and I'm not limited. I'm finite, and I'm not finite. And the way I realize that I'm not finite is by being compassionate with my finitude. And my finitude is like, I can't stand being so small right now.
2: Idea of what this face to face meeting is, and that's what gives rise to the thought I can't do that face to face meeting, or no, there is no face to face
0: meaning. Probably, probably if, you, if you say you can't, you have a fixed idea of what it is.
2: But mm-hmm. if you understand that you're always meeting and that meeting has myriad forms, then you don't have to fall into that. Yeah. You can, you can embrace whatever.
0: And yeah, maybe you, maybe you don't have to fall into it. However, when you do fall into it, that's also, when you fall into it and say, I cannot meet this person, that's the way you're doing it. You are doing it all the time. It's just you don't get it sometimes. And part of the reason you don't get it is because you've fallen into some finite image of what it looks like. But that's the way you're doing it. And then late, a few minutes later you realize, oh that's the way I was doing it. Now I see it. Now I don't. Yeah. So if you if you a certain understanding, you won't fall. And that understanding, which makes it so you don't fall, also understands that when you do fall, you haven't fallen. You cannot fall into unreality. It's not possible. But you can think that you do. And then that's and, that, and that's bad enough. That's sufficiently bad. I'm in hell. Yep. Okay.
2: Yes. Uh,
1: as you're talking about the face-to-face conversation, I keep thinking about uh, like the relationships that are where my habit may be facing away. Uprodenness. And um, uh, like giving my cheek. <laughs> but... Uh, and I'm, as listening to you, I'm thinking, I think in a way there's a protest in there. Let's say he's not holding me in his embrace. But then I also realized by asking that there's a responsibility of holding somebody else in my embrace. And um, there's a, I think, an open clarity. Like there is a nobleness to always wanting that, but I think the thought of having that in
0: Um. What's scaring you again? Yeah, I think if you actually listen to this uh, and start to open to it, as you open, I think many people um, become afraid or terrified of it. Like uh, recently someone said, I feel like I would be annihilated if I open to it. And even if you don't open to it, you will not be annihilated because nothing's annihilated. But we think things can be annihilated. And then when we open to this, the infinity of this face-to-face transmission, a lot of people may feel like they would be annihilated. It's quite, I wouldn't say common, but it's a, for those who open to it, they often feel that way. And then somebody else might feel afraid that they would be eternal. All the people are so afraid of being eternal. But anyway, you might be afraid of being eternal. Like I'd have to live with this person I have face-to-face transmission with forever. So I think that 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 fear is, I don't know what I would say, it's welcome. And so I need to welcome the fear, and I need to give my face, give a gift to that fear, and let that, and welcome that fear, the face of that fear, welcome it. And, and then the comment might be it's difficult to welcome that fear. Mm-hmm. But that's similar to it's difficult to have a conversation with, with that. I think what you're talking about, I've heard this On, on when we start looking at this kind of meeting. Some of the implications of it might be really like, oh, I'd never gone there before. You know, one of the implications is is you do have to actually work things out with some people that you never thought you'd have to work things out with. Or some people that you think it's impossible to work things out with that person. So forget it.
2: Is it possible to practice in this way when the other person is not present? Yes. What I'm thinking. What
0: you should say? You say not present, you mean you can't see them? Sometimes. So you, you see a bias, and then as you, as you contemplate it, you start to tense up?
2: Uh, no, it's more like a um, sitting in a sea of biases, <laughs> that
0: we all sit in. Sitting in a sea of biases, yeah. So in our karmic consciousness, there's a sea of biases in our normal consciousness. We have a sea of biases, Mm -hmm. and surrounding our sea of biases (laughs) is a vast, dark forest. Our sea of biases is actually a little clearing in the middle of a vast forest of, of biases. And then in the vast forest are a bunch of other seas of biases, which are called other people. (laughs) <laughs> so here we are, all of us here. Individual seas of biases, where we're, each of us is sitting. I'm sitting in a sea of biases, and I'm, and I'm have the bias that I'm talking to you in a certain way. And um, yeah, how are we doing? In our seas of bias, you're in yours, I'm in mine. How are we doing? In this moment. Yeah, we're like we're like enacting a conversation. Yeah. And so you want to bring up some time when things aren't great? Go ahead. You want to talk about something other than this? Uh, Try. See if you can talk yes. about something.
2: <laughs> a stack of student papers that yeah. I need to grade. That I.
0: So, you want to have a conversation about that stack of student conversations with me? I mean, st- stack of student <laughs> papers?
2: Uh, the, the question really was about paralysis in the face of not being able to feel that one acts justly in life because of sitting in seat
0: of Well, when you tell me, when you bring up paralysis, we can talk about it. Hmm. Okay, so y- you got some paralysis on you? You have some paralysis now? You're just imagining some time when you might have a paralysis? I know myself to have... You pr- yes. that, <laughs> that in the, in, the pa- in your, part of your history is that you have a story. You have a story that you have become para- paralyzed in the face of certain meetings. Mm-hmm. Right? And you can imagine right now, and I can too, that maybe in the future you would have paralysis again. Okay, so what we need now is a conversation with another, for example, me. So next, so now I don't know. We could just bring in a bunch of papers right now, <laughs> and and bring in papers until you start to say, actually, I'm starting to feel paralysis now. And then, and then we could say, are you willing to talk to me now? And you might say yes, and and then and you might realize that you are talking to me. While you're feeling this paralysis, you're talking to me, you're having a conversation, and you start to notice that you're being called into question. What's being called into question? You, who has the view, I'm in paralysis. I'm not telling you to. I'm not telling you don't think that you're in paralysis. I'm talking to you, and in the conversation, you will have the opportunity. For your opinion that you're in paralysis to be doubted by you because of me, I'm not telling you you're wrong. I could, but just me being here is going to like start opening the door to some question about well, what is paralysis, and is this really paralysis, or is this just something coming from me as a gift to the world, and so on? So we we need. We need this face-to-face transmission to be going on when we're paralyzed, when we're stuck, when we're rigid. We cannot get ourselves out of being paralyzed. However, we will get out of being paralyzed. We will. It's going to happen. But it'd be nice if we could join the process. And the way to join the process is by conversation with language with another. That's how to do justice to paralysis. It isn't just let it be paralysis and it be stuck in paralysis. It's to have a conversation with it. It's not to say this isn't paralysis. Get rid of the paralysis. Bad paralysis. Bad me. It's like a way of working with it that realizes that It includes the whole universe. Paralysis includes the whole universe as much as relaxation does. They both do. So we need need this reality to be exercised. We need to enact this selfless reality, the selflessness of a conversation, which we're doing right now. And you said, this is great. when I'm not around, you still need to have this conversation. And you can have it when I'm with you and when I'm not. And I can have it when I'm with you and I'm not. But when I'm having it with you or not with you, we have justice. And when I'm not, and when I'm not exercising it, it's like, well, I don't see the justice because I'm not doing the practice. I don't see the enlightenment because I'm not doing the practice. But you can do the practice. The Buddha is saying, this is the place. In that room, with those papers, the Buddha is going, this is the place to build a sanctuary for face-to-face meeting and realizing justice with these papers, with these students. We cannot realize justice alone. And nobody else is gonna do it for us. But we are doing it together. And, it, and it's it's what do you call it? It's a full-time, full-scale engagement. That's what it is. That's reality, is full-time, wholehearted engagement. That's reality. We have to enact that. It and takes, it takes all of us to do it. And we've got all of us to give to it. We just have all of ourselves. We don't have part of ourselves. But somehow we have history of like, well, I'm going to give part of myself to you and part of myself to you. And I'll have a little bit left over for tomorrow. OK, I can be like that. <laughs> May-